Welcome everyone to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 283 recap on Twitter Spaces. Today we have nine news items. We're going to be discussing disclosure of past L&D vulnerabilities with Nicholas Goga, fee-dependent time lots with hopefully Antoine Riard, cluster fee estimation with Abubakar and Gloria, how to specify unspendable keys in descriptors with Salvatore and Gala, V3 transaction pinning costs with Gloria, descriptors in PSBT draft BIP with the Seedhammer team, verification of arbitrary programs using proposed opcode from Matt with Johan Halseth, pool exit payment batching with delegation using fraud proofs with Salvatore again, and new coin selection strategies with our very own merch. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink. Merch. Hi, I'm Merch, and I'm worried that we'll get through all this stuff today. Gloria. Hi, I'm Gloria. I work on the Coin Core at Brink. Johan. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Johan. I do Bitcoin research and development at Nidig in open source. Seedhammer. Hello, I'm from the Seedhammer team. We sell, uh, produce, and sell uh, automatic engravers for Bitcoin backups. Salvatore. Hello, I'm Salvatore. Uh, I like Bitcoin and I like trees. Let's put it like that. Abubakar. Hello, everyone. I am Abubakar Sadiq Ismail. I contribute to Bitcoin Co, uh, supported by Bitrust. And Nicholas. Hi, I'm Nicholas. Um, I also work on Bitcoin Core, also at Brink. Well, let's jump into it. We're going to go through the newsletter sequentially. I've shared some tweets in the space for you to follow along, but the best place to go is bitcoinops.org to follow along with newsletter 283. First news item this week is disclosure of past LND vulnerabilities. Nicholas, you posted to the Delving Bitcoin forum about a couple of vulnerabilities you had found previously, um, both of which are in the LND Lightning implementation. How would you walk listeners through those bugs, how you found them, how you disclosed them? Yeah, so at the time, I was still in uni doing some research for my bachelor thesis on the gossip protocol that's used in Lightning. And I was looking at the various implementations and specifically LND because it has like a very, like most nodes are LND, or at least at the time, I'm not sure what the current status is. Um, and I, yeah, I was looking at the gossiping code in LND and found two issues. Um, the first one is a denial of service bug, where an LND node is basically at risk of running out of memory and then crashing. And yeah, these types of bugs in Lightning nodes are bad because if your node isn't online, it can't broadcast penalty transactions, so you are risk at risk of losing funds. And this bug in particular, um, so whenever you establish a new channel, you and your channel partner will broadcast three messages. The, the first one is a channel announcement, and then there's two ten channel updates, one, one for each channel edge, which and the channel up, uh, update holds channel routing policies like the fees you're gonna charge. Um, and while these messages propagate through the network, a race can occur where a node will see the channel update before the channel announcement, 
but you can only check the signatures in the channel update if you've seen the channel announcement. So if you see the channel update before the announcement, you have two choices. Either you throw it away or you keep it around in hopes that you'll see the announcement a bit later. Um, and that's what LND used to do and still does, but it used to do that with a buffer that's unbounded. So it would just store these channel updates that it couldn't validate in a buffer that's unlimited in size. So if an attacker just spams you with invalid updates, um, yeah, you'll just eventually run out of memory. Um, and they fix that by introducing a cache for these premature updates that is limited in size. So now, um, yeah, now you can't run out of memory from this anymore. Um, and, and maybe talk about the responsible disclosure along with the, the sort of timing of, you know, when you brought this up versus when it was, was fixed and all that. Oh, we lost. The question scared him. That, that was an easy pitch. Welcome back, Nicholas. Yeah, hi. I, my, my, time limit, my time limit for Twitter just ran out, so. <laughs> <It kicked me laughs> off, That's funny. <laughs> um, I was asking, uh, maybe talk a little bit about responsibly disclosing and then maybe some of the timeline as well. Yeah, should I get into the second bug first or? Uh, oh, yeah. 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 I, yeah. We can do the timing all together after. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you yeah, go into the second it's bug? It's the same first. for both. So, probably makes more sense. Um, yeah. All right. So, the second bug is related also to channel update gossiping. Um, so, all Lightning implementations basically rate limit how many channel updates they will relay um, per like a given time frame. It's like all implementations have like different parameters for what the exact rate limit is. Um, but LND basically used to rate limit channels before checking the signatures on the channel updates, which means an attacker can just spam invalid updates and rate limit a specific channel, even though, um, yeah, without valid signatures. So a subsequent valid channel update would not propagate because the rate limit has been exceeded. Um, and this was just fixed by checking the signatures before rate limiting. Um, yeah, and I guess in theory, the second one could have been used to get some advantage in in the routing, like in the transaction routing market, where you, like you um, where you rate limit the channel updates for your competitors, maybe, and their updates won't propagate anymore, so people would tend to route through you. But that's, I mean, a bit theoretical. I'm not sure how easy that would actually be to pull off. Um, okay, then for disclosure, I emailed. Lightning Labs, um, they fixed both these issues fairly quickly, made the releases, and then I took a lot of time to publicly disclose this, basically mostly because I was a little lazy. Um, I should have or could have done this sooner as well. Um, yeah, any other questions? I think if folks are, are interested, they should jump into the um, post on Delving Bitcoin uh, for some of the more more details there. Um, I think you provided a good overview, Merch, or any of our other guests. Do you have a question for Nicholas or from the audience? Oh, also, one, one thing I can add is that basically no one needs to do anything, like upgrade their nodes, because these bugs were superseded by different other bugs. For example, the bugs that Burak, or the bug that Burak exploited. So nobody can even run a version that's affected by these bugs. So. Excellent. Well, thanks for your great work, even in university, on 
finding these, reporting these, um, obviously being a Brinky and getting a grant from Brink, we love to see this sort of work you know, and testing and securing the underlying software and protocols. So from a thank you from me personally, um, and look forward to more bugs being mined by Nicholas. Thanks. Should we move on to cluster fee estimation? All right. Well, Antoine, while you work on that, we're, we're going to jump to Abubakar's item here on cluster fee estimation. Abubakar, you also posted to Delving Bitcoin um, about some insights that you had from the design of cluster mempool and how specifically cluster mempool can improve fee estimation in Bitcoin core. Do you want to maybe outline, you know, maybe, maybe some context on how it's done now versus how it could be done in a cluster mempool world and what the benefits might be of that? Yes. yes uh, thank you, Mike. So uh, there is a known issue currently in Bitcoin course uh, fee estimator, which is currently it considers only the fee rates of a transaction when it's confirmed and Sometimes uh, some transactions are going to be CPF bids and they are not confirmed uh, based on their fee rates. They are confirmed as uh, a package with the ancestor and its descendant. So it does not consider the uh, ancestors, uh, ancestor score of that uh, package. And also it ignores all uh, transactions that has in mempool parent. So it has some incorrect data points and uh, ignore data points. So with cluster mempool, we are going to have uh, a linearization of the mempool, which means at each point, we will know the mining score of every transaction. So whenever transactions are added to the mempool, a single transaction is, uh, is a single chunk. So the fee estimator will now track uh, transactions in chunks instead of tracking them individually. So whenever a, transa- a chunk is filled, is updated, the fee estimator is also going to, to track that, which is going to fix uh, the two issues that we have currently, which is incorrect data point and ignoring some, some data points. So uh, there are some concerns about this also, which is uh, there may be some mempool difference between users node and, and the new block which will mean that uh, after you get a new block with lots of transactions, some of the chunks that you track might not correspond with what is in the block. So what we, well, after I post this, uh, some contributors commented and uh, what we are going to do about is this is we are going to ignore uh, these discrepancies Whenever a chunk field did not match what is in the block, we are just going to ignore that uh, data point. So this is briefly um, about the post. Go ahead, Rich. Could you go into a little more detail how you distinguish whether the chunk fee rate was used to uh, pick a transaction into the block versus it being in a different spot? Okay. So um, when we are tracking the chunks, for example, a particular transaction might have like, uh, a particular chunk might have two transactions, 
But when the new block arrives, maybe only the parent is confirmed. The parent uh, transaction is in, in incentivized minus enough, and we only receive uh, uh, the payment transaction. So the chunk fee rate may differ in this case. And if the mempool also differs from the current note with what minus has, uh, maybe in my own mempool, I have uh, maybe three transactions in a package and the, the node does not see the uh, two transactions. It only sees one transaction. And when it, when it confirms that uh, it will only be one transaction and what I have in my mempool, a fee estimator mempool will be three transactions. So the chunk fee rate may differ from, from what the block has. Right, so basically you're looking at whether the transactions that belong to the same chunk reappear in the same order at the fee rate of the chunk fee, uh, sorry, at the fee rate that we would have picked transactions with the chunk fee rate into the block. Otherwise, you know that you can ignore it because it might have been there for other reasons or if they're split up, they might not have been treated as a chunk by the miner that picked them. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And we also don't want uh, miners to influence our estimates. Uh, maybe miners might be removing one transaction from each chunk. And then if you are tracking it incorrectly, so we don't, we want a situation whereby we are tracking only what we see in our mempool. If it does not match uh, the new block, then we will just ignore that. Did you have another comment, Merch? No, I just have two big fingers and hit the wrong button. <laughs> All right. Uh, Gloria, do you have any thoughts on what Abubakar's outlined here? Um, he, not, not much to add. I think we looked at this a couple of years ago, kind of before Cluster Mempool was as flushed out as it is today. And it was like, yeah, there's not really a way to do this because we can only really look at static ancestor descendant scores. Um, and really anytime a chunk theory changes, it's like a brand new bid. Um, so really one transaction can correspond to multiple bids for block space, right? It can get CPFP'd, it can get CPFP'd again, it can be CPFP'ing something that gets CPFP'd by something else, right? Um, and so having cluster mempool kind of really naturally solves this along with other issues of a very similar nature, of course. I, I find it uh, remarkable that people are already talking about cluster mempool as being here because we've been thinking about it so much, but I uh, need to caution the audience that cluster mempool is still in draft stage. <laughs> yeah, maybe a quick clarification there, maybe Merch, Gloria, or Abubakar, whoever feels like they want to take it. Um, is there something with cluster mempool that can be played with from a code perspective right now? And is that how this sort of uh, experimentation or, or theorization of how fees could be um, estimated better came from code or more theoretical? Go ahead, Merch. Uh, so there's a bunch of write-ups on Delving Bitcoin already that uh, detail the concepts in a very large 
depth, and I believe there is an open pull request by Suhas, which is a draft, like not actually proposed for merging, but more as a, a discussion point for um, talking about the design space of cluster mempool. Um, I don't think that there's more than that yet. Uh, Gloria? Um, yeah, I guess for me, when I, so prior to cluster mempool, when, you know, it hadn't begun to enter my imagination as something that could be done, what I was trying to advocate for was having a persistent block template built, um, just so we got, have an idea of what the next block looks like and what the minor i.e. chunk fee rates of those transactions are using today's vocabulary. So I had kind of a list of things where it's like, okay, if you know the minor score, i.e. the chunk fee rate, again, of this transaction. I mean, we kind of had this when we were talking about Ancestor where funding, right, Merch, um, where we were like, okay, if you had some kind of black box that could tell you what the chunk fee rate or incentive compatibility score or minor score or mining score of all the, you know, terms that we use to talk about this type of fee rate, um, then we could solve this whole list of problems, right? And so for me, I guess having like this black box has existed in my brain for years. Um, and now it feels concrete. I mean, there's code, right? Like that's, it's, it's bread that's been eaten. Like it's, it's done. Like, <laughs> we have it today. <laughs> that's how well, it is happening. <laughs> yeah, it's happening. Well, I think normally we'd want to spend a little bit more time on some of these items, but in the interest of nine news items, I think we can move on. Uh, Antoine said he connected to a different Wi-Fi, but now we have lost him. So we will continue with the next news item, which is how to specify unspendable keys in descriptors. And we have Salvatore here who started the discussion also on Delving Bitcoin about how to allow descriptors uh, to specify a key for which no private key is known. Uh, maybe, Salvatore, maybe let's just start. What's an unspendable key and then why do we want it in descriptors? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, an unspendable key is just a key for which uh, we are we are pretty much sure that nobody knows the private key. Um, so that makes it uh, useless in the sense that you cannot spend by using that key, right? Um, so it's, it sounds a stupid idea to put unspendable keys in general, but in the world of Taproot, that's actually something that we might need to do in some situations. Uh, because a taproot, uh, a pay-to-taproot output has these two components, which is the, the internal key, which is just a public key, and the, the tree of the all the scripts, right? And there might be situations, so ideally, taproot is designed in such a way that you want to sp you spend with the, the internal key as much as possible, because that's the cheapest way of spending it, and it's also uh, the most private, because uh, nobody even knows that there are scripts if you spend in, in that way. Uh, but there might be situations where you don't want to have um, an internal key because you don't want to be able to spend just with a public key because you use some complicated mini-script policies. And, um, and so we need this, a solution for that. Um, so there are many known, known ways of uh, creating uh, manually uh, an unspendable key. Um, one, uh, some of them are also specified in some BIPs, like B BIP 341, if I remember. Um, but uh, there is no 
codified way to uh, encode these things in uh, in the scriptors yet, uh, which is what we want to use to uh, to create these wallets with a, with a software or a hardware signing device. Um, and that will make will make it difficult for users who are not very experienced to to use this kind of uh, this kind of situation, this kind of uh, wallet policies. Um, and so, um, in the context of making these things uh, easier to use, uh, I think it's important to define a standard soon, uh, sooner rather than later, so that uh, uh, all the software wallets can uh, get up up to speed with this kind of uh, things. And so there are two uh, two things that um, are important uh, in this. One is just having a standard, and uh, I did some brainstorming uh, on, on how the standard could look like. Uh, actually, uh, Peter Willey had done, some, and other people had done already some brainstorming that I had forgotten about. I didn't, didn't find the GitHub gist initially, uh, but more or less, it's very similar to uh, what I was proposing, I think. Uh, and another thing that uh, it's a little bit beyond uh, that is uh, an attempt um, that I was discussing on uh, minimizing the amount of information that needs to be stored in the uh, in the backup of the policy, uh, because uh, when you use this uh, kind of uh, scripts with with a hardware signing device, uh, currently the the biggest uh, point of friction for the users is to have to verify. Um, when they create this, this new wallet, they have to verify on the screen of the device the exact that the script that they're using, so the descriptor actually matches uh, what they have in their backup. And so the more information is there, the more it becomes difficult, especially because often the, these devices have uh, a relatively small screen. Um, and so uh, if we show more information, people are more likely to skip this security step, which actually makes them uh, vulnerable to some attacks. Because uh, if, if someone uh, replaces some keys without telling to them, uh, for example, uh, then, then they would end up not having a backup of their policy, which can be used to uh, attack them, to ransom them, or, uh, or so, so forth. Um, and so, yeah, I was uh, discussing an approach where actually you would be able to uh, avoid having any uh, additional entropy um, on the on the wallet policy itself, uh, because you could. Uh, what matters for this unspendable key is that uh, you have enough entropy to an, an external observer, so that people cannot uh, guess that that's an unspendable key. This is just a useful thing to avoid fingerprinting. Um, but uh, but you actually don't need this entropy to be unknown to people who have the who actually know the descriptor, um, and so uh, one approach that I was proposing was to uh, actually derive this entropy from the rest of the keys in the descriptor because those are known to uh, whoever uh, knows the descriptor, and so that will avoid to have uh, to have at all any entropy that needs to be shown to the user because it's not part of the backup. I hope I didn't go too fast. No, I think that was good. Um, I think one of the points of discussion was this, like just having something hard-coded or not. Um, you, maybe you touched on that a bit, but maybe elaborate on that discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there was... Um, so the simplest solution would be to just have one known public key that is known to be unspendable, um, and um, and that works uh, will be very easy to do. Will not require even any change to the scriptors because at that point uh, that key becomes easy to identify for software or hardware signing device. Uh, but the problem is that every time you spend 
from that uh, policy, uh, from that script, from any UTXO that uses this kind of script, uh, external observers would know that that key was unspendable, which it's not a terrible thing because it does not reveal a lot, but it still reveals something like allows you to distinguish from other wallets that actually have a real key. So it is some amount of fingerprinting. And so any fingerprinting uh, is bad because once you combine different bits of information here and there, uh, you can combine them and you end up actually being able to fingerprint more. So if we can avoid fingerprinting, it's always a good thing. And. Uh, and so the, the idea of, um, of both the approaches I was proposing and also the, the approach from Peter Willey is that uh, we can use an XPub um, that is actually from, uh, so an extended public key that has the, the known unspendable public key, but put the entropy in the chain code. Uh, because that guarantees that if the chain code has enough entropy, once you derive keys from this, uh, from this public key, uh, the child public keys are also guaranteed to be unspendable, but uh, but nobody can uh, can know that they are derived from this uh, original public key. So that's that's basically the the gist of the idea. Merch, did you have a question? I do not. Thank you, Salvatore. Thanks for walking us through that. I know we have an item that we're going to talk with you about uh, shortly. So hopefully you can stay on. Yep, of course. And obviously, if any folks have questions or comments on any of these um, Delving Bitcoin posts or discussions, feel free to request speaker access or comment in the Twitter thread. We'll jump back quickly to uh, the second item from the news section, which is fee-dependent time locks. And Antoine, we lost you a little bit in the audio earlier, so maybe start your, your framing of this yeah. discussion over. Do you hear me better? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, so, fear rate dependent time lock. Uh, so, it's a new proposal. It's a new consensus change. And it's aiming uh, to solve a long standing problem in the off chain space, in the Bitcoin off chain space. Uh, this long standing problem has been formalized for the first time in the Lightning white paper, uh, in like underscoring the risk of mass false flows. So, let's say you have like millions of. of Ocean Lightning uh, channels open, and everyone goes on chain at the same time. Uh, the blocks becomes full, and like the uh, fees, like uh, the fees are spiking, and uh, you start to have an issue in the sense of you like the Lightning channel funds might be all the, the values in your Lightning channel funds might not be enough to pay in on chain fees to get in the blocks before the time locks are expiring. And if you have like millions of people, like millions million of Lightning users. Uh, reacting the same uh, to like and force closure at the same times, we might start to have like this massive force closure, and that's like quite concerning because like if you cannot confirm a lightning channel before time lock expires, your funds are going to be jeopardized, and you are not going to be able like to uh, recover your funds because be, before your counterparty might be able, and your counterparty might be able to escape a punishment, or your counterparty might be able to double spend an option HTLC. Um, so, theoretical dependent time locks aims to solve this by introducing a new, a new logic where you do have like uh, a fee rate upper bound uh, encoded in transaction and sequence field. And there is like a new median fee rate, which is like computed from a, a windows of size n, and this size n is going to be on the last block. 
So you're going to look on each block. You're going to compute like a median fee rate, take the four megabytes of uh, weight unit of the blocks and look at the half of them and compute like this per block fee rate for the end blocks of your windows. And if the transactions uh, encoded fee rate is uh, is um, is under uh, this median fee rate, it can confirm. If it's above, it won't confirm. So whereas enable, enable, enable in case of on-chain on congestion, your lightning option transactions are going to be, the confirmation of them are going to be delayed until like uh, the block congestion is like slowing down. So we start to have like these dynamic mechanisms where like uh, where people might be able like to delay confirmation of their ocean states until they can confirm at an acceptable fee rate. Go ahead, Merch. Yep. Um, I, so let's say there is a million lightning channels that all need to go on chain at 50 sets per V-byte. And yep. their transactions are locked with your new described mechanism. Yep. So transactions with 50 bytes are remain locked because fee rates are too high. Yes. Then after some time, the fee rate comes back down. And now all those 1 million transactions all want to get into the block. And the block does include transactions that are 50 sets per V-byte. Yes. But there's still not enough room. So wouldn't they still like become um, um, do you mean like there is valid no, to include? Uh, there is no enough room like in the sense of the block are still full? Yeah, because a million transactions yes. can't fit in one block. Well, you're still in competitions, but what this mechanism is in W is like you should be able, uh, you should be able to, like, it's putting the responsibility on the users to determine the fee level, the fee bumping uh, reserve level that you should keep. In the sense of at 20, 20, uh, 25 sat per bytes, like. My understanding of John Law proposal is like your transaction uh, sh should be able to confirm. There are no more like under uh, delay time lock. Uh, so if the median fee rate of the blocks is lower than your own fee rate, you should have been included. So um, yeah. at that yes, point, yes. you become. Because, yes. At, okay, at I see. I see. Yeah. About the block resulting in transactions because your transactions are being above the median block. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, how likely do you think that this can be actually put into the protocol? Huh. Uh, so I think I made the comments you, you can, because like John Law proposal is like, uh, is like adding this in the end sequence field. And I made the counter proposal that you can, uh, do everyone knows about the taproot annex, like, which has been added by uh, B341. Perhaps maybe maybe we can just assume that knowledge for now. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's some kind of like new uh, data space, which is like part of the transaction center guess for pay to taproot spends, and it has been like left as some kind of white card for developers for let's say when we want to add more features in the protocol at the consensus level. And I made a contract proposal. We might add this in the annex in the sense of it gives us like more, like we can encode like bigger values and we can like encode like more granular in the mechanism. Uh, so it, it something fits, uh, it fits well there, 
my biggest concern is more like you know like median fee rates and like how we could introduce this and like you know like not introducing like new DOS selector uh like it, it doesn't sound it's no more complicated like god level than something like um me, uh, median time passed and all the time locks logic but they are like uh quite complex uh, technical issue in themselves. So to answer matching question, I think uh, proposal is too early. I, I think it's like we are still like understanding better like how it solves a lot of lightning uh, security issues and how it can solve also like other time sensitive second layers issue, technical issues and also like how you could combine this with other proposal to solve like many more uh, many more lightning security issues because. As soon as you start to have like median fee rates in blocks, you can like uh, you, you know you can introduce some upper bounds on like the level of fees that people are going to burn, and based on this like you know not we move a lot of games, spinning games we have and things like this. But in my opinion, it's more like uh, it's more like an add-on that we could have on top of this. Yes. The the other question that comes to mind right now is: Have you seen any discussion of what happens when this um, minimum fee rate never gets reached again? The funds are just locked up indefinitely and neither side can exit? Or? Uh, you mean like, yes, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, like your funds should stay locked. And should, uh, I, didn't, uh, I did propose to introduce some kind of grass delay or some kind of, Let's say you introduce relative time locks, but the endpoint of your relative time locks is the latest block of the windows, of the theory rate windows. And based on this, you might say, hey, uh, you, you might introduce a new spending branch where like, you're burning the fees or where you're like uh, giving 50% back to the miners or like, it's a good question. Like it has not been raised yet as a concern. Yeah, but funds might stay locked in a way. You know, like the hard thing is like you don't want to like screw miners sometimes, and you don't want to introduce some kind of um, advantage or like any kind of games at the advantage of one of the counterparty. So yeah. Any other questions from Merch or our special guests? All right, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks. I think. Hey, Antoine, thanks for jumping on and joining <laughs> us. Thanks, and I look at the proposal. It's very interesting. You're welcome to stay on, but if you have other things to do, you can drop as well, Antoine. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks for me. Next news item, V3 transaction pinning costs, which was a discussion initiated by Peter Todd on the Bitcoin Dev mailing list. Talking about transaction pinning, V3 transaction relay policy for different contracting protocols like Lightning. Peter was unable to join us today to represent his idea. But the good news is we have Gloria here, who I think will do a good job of at least explaining what Peter's trying to get across and, and maybe some of her thoughts on it. Gloria, how would you frame up what Peter's trying to say here? Yeah, sure. Um, I think there are two kind of main things that he started with, with his uh, reviews that he posted. And then there's kind of more recent stuff that we can talk about. So the main thing I think is that like uh, pinning still exists is kind of the assertion there. And we're talking about rule three pinning, which is 
um, with a replacement, you have to pay at least the fees of everything that you're replacing. And of course, that can include the transaction that you share with your counterparty, um, as well as any descendants that they would have attached to that. Um, and so we can today, uh, due to current descendant limits, which are 101,000 virtual bytes um, across 25, sometimes 26 transactions. Um, today, there is a lot of room to attach a very large transaction that doesn't pay a necessarily high fee rate, but does pay a lot in absolute fees. And so for you to need to replace that, let's say you're thinking, okay, I want to fee bump my transaction to X fee rate. Um, so I'm willing to pay this much in fees. The pin is that you might need to pay more than that um, in order to replace things that have been maliciously placed there to make it more costly for you to pull off your fee bump. Um, and so Peter Todd's analysis, where he looks at kind of the lower and upper bounds of what these transaction sizes can be with V3, um, he's pointed out that it is still possible for uh, an attacker to pin you and make you pay up to, I think his number was 1.5 times more than what you would have wanted to pay in order to do your CPFP. Um, and so that is true, um, though, because this is basically due to kind of the worst case scenario ratio between the shared transaction and the size of the descendants, um, the ratio with V3 is like a lot closer to, let's say, two or three, um, whereas the ratio today, worst case, is more than 100. Um, and so we played around with some ranges of transaction sizes that were given um, where, you know, we said, okay, here's, here's the worst case, here are some fee rates, here's, you know, obviously all of these numbers are configurable depending on what the fee rate market is and depending on, let's say, how many HGLCs are in that commitment transaction that you share and you're trying to bring on chain. Um, and we did the math and I was like, look, the worst case in V3 is correct. You might have to pay a few thousand extra Satoshis. Um, and this is as promised in the V3 proposal. We help mitigate pinning attacks because today the worst case is you might have to pay extra millions of Satoshis in this same scenario. Um, and so uh, hopefully I've represented this in a fair slash objective way where it's like, yes, congrats, you know, pinning is still possible, but if you are talking about quantifying the actual damage that you can do in this case, our goal, or at least the promise was not, you know, you're never going to need, like the, it's zero, right? It's It's been worded as this is a 100X improvement because the ratio, like the, let's say the descendant size that you can add has been brought down by a hundred times. Um, and so hopefully that makes sense where basically the gripe is, oh, there's still a small window of opportunity to do bad. And it's like, okay, we've brought that down by a magnitude of hundreds. Merch, you have a question. 
No, I I wanted to comment. Um, I've glanced at the discussion around this um, analysis, and in a way, it feels like uh, Peter is doing you a favor by steel manning just how much better V3 transactions will be in pinning situations than the current situation. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think he, he essentially, I don't know, I'm not trying to misrepresent anything, but um, yeah, like he gives, okay, you know, what if your transaction has this size? Um, and I'm like, okay, like, let's do the math of, you know, what would happen today and what would happen in a V3 world. Um, and the numbers, I think, speak for themselves. And it's not this like magic, you know, number. Uh, I mean, it's not like sneaky magic with numbers, right? It's like, it makes sense because we are severely reducing the ratio of worst case amount of descendant size attached to your transaction. And so it sounds like the discrepancy here is under the terms significant or substantial mitigation and insufficient, these sort of more subjective things, which through these discussions has turned into more quantified um, savings that, well, I, I guess if you don't value the the decrease or in a hundred X or the fact that we went from uh, paying, having to pay a uh, hundred X to one and a half X that we all agree that that's still there, but that it's obviously a substantial improvement, even if some folks may think that that's not enough. Yeah. And of course, you know, these numbers depend on kind of what the restriction is set at, right? So um, kind of with the numbers that we played with, it's given like, so V3 restricts your child size to a thousand virtual bytes. And so one of the things that Peter Todd recommended was to shrink that even further, right? So to like, reduce that ratio to like kind of squeeze that down as much as possible. Um, but I think I'm not super convinced of that because the smaller you make that number, also the more difficult it is for lightning wallets to always be able to fund those transactions, those fee bumping children um, with a smaller number of UTXOs. Um, so there is like, you know, we could reduce it further, but I think this is a good trade-off between um, what's the pinning maximum damage and how usable and feasible is it to expect people to keep their transactions this small. Gloria, while we have you and we're talking V3, um, how would you summarize the, the current state of V3 relay and related policy stuff? Um, is Antoine still here? No, I don't see him. He jumped off. Um yeah, so obviously, I, I don't know, Merch, you said you were following it. I'm, I'm going to try to be objective, of course. Uh, on the, you said the question of like how people are receiving it. Um, so uh, the other kind of two main criticisms that Peter Todd presented, one was kind of a general criticism of using CPFP instead of RBF um, in kind of these protocols and and in general, um, because of how efficient it is. Um, so I think the tagline that a lot of people latched onto was that CPFP hurts finding decentralization. Um, and the argument is, well, CPFP is not very efficient, right? You have an output um, in the Lightning Anchors construction. Um, it 
it's a script and it, you know, it takes up space in both the script pub key and when you go to spend it. Um, and all those extra bytes need to go on chain and obviously you need to pay the fees for that as well. And so this is less efficient than say, if you could create an RBF to replace that transaction, or of course, nothing is as efficient as if you could hand a lot of cash to a miner and have them just include it for you, um, obviously. And so I guess the argument is that because the protocol is writing that you need to use CPFP in Lightning, um, this creates a reason for people to I, actually, I'm sorry, I don't actually know how to, uh, it's inefficient. <laughs> so therefore it's better to, I don't know. He, I don't know how you get to the hurting decentral. Okay. Merch, you have the, the way the argument i i don't know about how this would hurt decentralization i um i think i wanted to respond to the you should be using rbf instead of cpfp i guess yes yeah, sure you could have a 20x fold or like some sort of exponentially spaced uh, set of rbf transactions for every commitment transaction but uh this has been not well received from lightning developers at all as far as i can tell simply because all of the state management in lightning is already super complicated and if you create many different variations of the commitment transactions that everybody has to keep track of you have um all these punishment transactions that you need to keep track of there if you have, um, for example, splicing or other things going on in parallel, you need to also branch off all of the future transactions of each variant of of your transaction. Um, maybe that's not entirely true, but like it sounds super complicated from the state management. So, I I think that there is a lot of attractive simplicity here in. You have an anchor that can be spent by each side. It only adds 50 bytes because you need only an opt-true and a empty input script. And um, just referencing the UTXO is 40 bytes plus an empty input script is one byte plus an opt-true is, I guess that would be two bytes, so 51 bytes. 51 bytes is so nothing that I just don't follow the the argument that it's extremely inefficient. Yeah, I think maybe it, it's definitely more efficient than how it is today. I, that's kind of one of the reasons for ephemeral anchors is to kind of cut out some of this fat. Um, yeah, you, you reduce it down to just one anchor instead of two as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if somebody else is able to articulate why this hurts decentralization. To be honest, I don't think it makes any sense. But Johan? Yeah. yeah, I guess the argument goes like, since it's cheaper to just not include uh, the, the child, you can go to the miner and pay him a little bit extra instead uh, of having it, have it, and he can use that extra few bytes for some, some other transaction. So you would never go to a small miner, right? You would go to the big pools. And pay them out of back. Sure. <laughs> it's a, sure. it's just a theory, I, I, right? So it's very, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Non-practical so, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think when designing a decentralized protocol, I don't think you can really use, just talk to your, you know, miner buddy 
to get the fees to get it mined. Um, I, I don't think that's a feasible option. Yeah, I, I think, well, if you look at the the effect, yes, there's 50 bytes that the miner could use for another transaction, but um, overall, I think that the incentives between just the out-of-band communication and the overhead of that, I don't think that whatever fees get collected with 50 extra bytes would make a measurable impact on like just looking at the time cost. So I, I, I see in the tendency that this is a correct argument, but not in practice, I think. All right. Um, Gloria, I think uh, you got to wrap up the topic nicely, and uh, I think it was a um, good overview of the discussion here. Did you have anything else? Nope. Gloria, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to stay on, or you can drop if you need to. Next item from the newsletter, descriptors in PSBT, draft BIP. So this is a Bitcoin dev mailing list post from the Seedhammer team for including descriptors in PSBTs. Seedhammer, why would we want that? Yeah, so the background for our case is that we want to back up descriptors as well as the, the private keys on steel plates. And the way, and because it's on steel plates, we do the both, we print, well, we engrave both the description in textual format and the description in a QR code format. And to do that in, 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 a, in a trustworthy way, the format of the descriptor has to be uh, both stable in years to come and also rather compact, so it doesn't take up too much of space on the plates. Um, and what we're doing right now is that we're using the blockchain commons format uh, for that. Uh, the problem with that's pretty co compact. The, the backside, the draw, the um, uh, the drawbacks of that format is it's 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 quite rigid. It can support general descriptors, and secondly, it it is based on the seaboard encoding, um, which adds quite a lot of complexity, especially for. Uh, constraint devices, embedded devices, and so on. And it's, it was also recently deprecated or be superseded by blockchain commons because of these, uh, among other things, because of this, uh, these problems. Another thing you can do is just to engrave or back up the descriptor in, in text, as you would see it in, in Bitcoin Core or in other, other wallets. The problem with that is that the, the XPUPs, uh, the text itself is not very efficient to be encoded in QR codes, uh, and the XPUPs are pretty long uh, in their native base 58 encoding. So um, to solve that, we, we wanted to, we have discussed with a few wallet developers in the community, and um, the idea came up that maybe we could just use the PSPD existing format for efficient binary trans, uh, transfer of data, which is the PSPT, which of course, given from the name, is, is made for unsigned or partially signed uh, transactions. But there is, it's the format itself is pretty general purpose, so we could, it is very, very straightforward and easy to squeeze in also a descriptor. And that would then, the idea is then to be, to make the PSPTs with descriptors the way to communicate descriptors among um, uh, wallet devices, wallet software, control, uh, sorry, coordinators and signers and so on. And the idea, of course, is that the PSPT format itself is simple to encode and decode, but also you pretty much have to have a, a codec for PSPT to do, um, to do Bitcoin transactions, signing of Bitcoin transactions uh, at all. 
So that's the that's the headline of of, of the motivation of this VIP. Um, yeah, that's about it. I've, I do have some now that Salvatore is on. I do have a question about because uh, I think he or someone from the Liana team brought up the idea of proof of registration, which is another extension of that. We could go into that if you want, but otherwise the the, the bib is pretty much pretty simple. It's it's just adding an extra field to PSPTs. Salvatore, did you have uh, a comment on the, the proof of registration that was mentioned? Uh, well, I don't know what's the question about the proof of registration. Uh, well, so so just to just to, um, to 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 also motivate that, the idea with the proof of registration is that you can add if you add just the description itself is is untrusted. You can't really know. I think we had this pre, uh, previously in this call. You can't really know whether this descriptor is trustworthy uh, just by having it, just by having your, say, XPUB, yours for signing devices perspective, having your key as part of the descriptor. You don't really know whether this is the intended one from the user's perspective. So with proof of registration, the idea is you add a little bit of extra data that tells that something, a device with access to the private keys of uh, say, if it's a multi-sig setup, of course, uh, say signer number one has had access to the private keys of, of, of the XPUB uh, corresponding to the signer number one and has signed it or HMAC'd it or done something to the descriptor to say, yes, the user, uh, or at least the, this device has supposedly gotten consent from the user that this is the descriptor that's intended uh, for this wallet. Uh, and that's also something I want to add to this proposal. I don't know if it needs to be in the proposal itself or as another extension uh, beside it. And my question would be, uh, I think Salvatore mentioned on a GitHub issue somewhere that HMAC would be enough to do, um, you do pr you pretty much serialize the descriptor and then add an, uh, an HMAC with a key, with a key from, um, from the wallet. And my question would be, why not do the signing so that other other um, other software can can actually verify that this has been signed? And also, if you do signing, you, there's I think there's a possibility to not have one proof of registration per co-signer, and thus you know adding more data to the to the descriptor backup of the descriptor information in, in total, but have one if you do aggregated signing. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some overlap with um, with the stuff that it's in the in the wallet policies BAP. Um, the, the proof of the concept of the proof of registration is not part of the BAP, although it's part of the approach that uh, I use in the implementation of wallet policies in, in ledger devices. Um, and um, yeah, the the reason is, so the HMAC is uh, not just on so the HMAC that. Uh, ledger uses is not just on the descriptor, but it also includes includes the name of the wallet policy, which is something that is shown on screen. Uh, that because this allows uh, uh, allows to identify what uh, in a named way uh, what what of your wallet accounts you are uh, uh, receiving or, send, or sending from. Um, and, and so the HMAC uh, makes it immutable. So the the key that is used for for the HMAC uh, is is derived from from the seed, uh, it actually, I internally actually uses the Leap 21, uh, which is from from Trezor's guys. Uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, 
it, it's derived from the seed, so it actually persists even if you load your seed on a on a new future different devices, a different device, it will uh, persist, uh, and it makes it immutable. Uh, the reason of an HMAC instead of a signature is that well, it's it's symmetric photography is faster, and here the the secret never leaves the device. Um, so in the first implementation, I actually used the signature, but then I uh, changed with with uh, with an HMAC. I don't know if Merch there were more questions. Merch, I saw you had a, a, a question um, about the proposal, or you had your hand up earlier. Did you want to ask Yeah, or I, I wanted to drill in a little bit on, is it just the PSBT format, or is it inside of the PSBTs? Because it, I, it wasn't quite clear to me yet whether there's a sort of a way to deliver the descriptor to someone that is receiving a PSBT or whether it's just reusing the PSBT format to exchange information? So the original proposal was just reusing the PSBT format, but having another a different header and so on. But it was suggested by, uh, I, I brought it up as an issue in my first in, in draft and was also suggested and confirmed on the Bitcoin dev mailing list that maybe it should just be part of the PSPT. So the actual proposal, uh, the, the next draft proposal is proposing adding a field to the PSPT format itself. And the, one of the reasons is, of course, to not have more magic numbers and headers in a different file format with the same, sorry, a different file type, but with the same format, but also so make to make it very easy to take a PSPT with a descriptor and turning it into a PSP, uh, sorry, a, a PSPT proper, which with a, that includes an, an unsigned transaction. Uh, and another reason is that there is actually, I didn't know that when I did the first draft, there's actually an XPUB field already in PSPT. Um, I suppose that's for if you have just, you know, um, a single signature wallet with just a single extended key, you can actually provide that with the PSPT. So um, so the proposal is actually building on top of that and, and extend, extending it to allow more piece, uh, sorry, uh, several XPUBs. And then of course the descriptive field itself that that can then, um, where it can express general uh, descriptors and manuscripts and so on. Seed Hammer, thank you for joining us and representing your draft BIP to the audience. You're welcome to stay on as we progress through the newsletter, or if you have other things to do, you can drop. Thank you. Next item from the newsletter is verification of arbitrary programs using proposed opcode from Matt. And we have the Delving Bitcoin post author here, Johan, to talk about Elf Trace and the proof of concept that he's put together with Op Check Contract Verify, which is from the Matt software proposal from Salvatore, who's also here. Um, Johan, that'll be the intro that, that I give, but how, how would you frame up the discussion to try to get people familiar with what you've put together here in this proof of concept? Yeah, so this post was more or less a follow-up to a demo I did earlier um, on the mailing list, I believe, um, where I showed how you could uh, basically run through this math uh, challenge protocol with some arbitrary program that you could could uh, write from sort of in like an assembly-like language in, in Bitcoin script. So what I did in this case was to actually do uh, use a real assembly language, uh, RISC-V, and create a kind of compiler that can take this RISC-V assembly and then 
convert that to Bitcoin script that's compatible with this math challenge protocol. Uh, so it's just like a rough proof of concept, but it shows that as long as you have like the compilers in order, uh, in my case, I use a regular GCC RISC-V compiler to compile a C function down to these Bitcoin scripts. And these Bitcoin scripts can be used to to um, to verify the memory uh, as it transitions through, through the RISC-V uh, virtual machine that you can run off-chain. So the point here is that you don't actually run the, the program uh, on-chain. You only post a trace of the computation or a hash of the trace. And then you can use these scripts that's generated by this compiler to verify every step of the computation. And together with the challenge protocol that um, uh, Salvatore laid out in the original post and that I also demoed earlier, you can, in theory, compile every, any program down to this this format and verify it uh, uh, on chain uh, as a as a as a multi-party protocol or contract how would you compare what you've outlined here to what we also point out is a similar concept which is bitvm how how would you at a high level compare and contrast those yeah i think they're based on the exact same ideas uh I, the main main um, difference is that uh, object contract verify is kind of made uh, to support this exact use case, which makes it much simpler to work with. It also makes it easy to create like uh, protocols that you don't have to pre-sign any transaction to. You don't have to predetermine who can take part in this protocol. Uh, you don't have to like hard code uh, public keys or pre-signed transactions, uh, and you can also commit very efficiently to the memory of the of the machine. Since you're working on uh, on Merkle trees or Merkleized memory, it can be the memory uh, this virtual mach- machine can access can be very very large. While in BitVM, it's a bit more unclear to me how practical uh, it will be uh, if you have to challenge the BitVM execution on chain since you're working essentially with bits uh, that itself take 30, uh, takes a full hash to represent on-chain. So um, the, the theory is, uh, is, is based on the same theory. This is obviously very practical to do, uh, but still this requires a soft work. BitVM does not require a soft work. How would you uh, categorize feedback that you've gotten on the idea? I know on the Delving Bitcoin post, it doesn't look like there's yet any responses, but potentially you've gotten commentary um, offline or in other avenues that have either been yep. supportive or, or um, maybe pointing out optimizations that could be made. What has the feedback been like? Yeah, the, the main feedback has been positive, and it's been... Uh, I think it's been eye-opening for for some people that you can do this with object contract verify, which is a very simple covenant proposal. Uh, I've also gotten the question whether this can be done with some of the other covenant proposals that's on the table, and that's that's something I'm working on now, trying to come to figure out if any of the other covenant proposals can be used to m- make this practical as well, uh, since. It's more or less just checking state from one transaction to the to the next. It's um, 
it's uh, you don't need a lot to be able to do this and uh, obviously you get a lot of power from from being able to do this Salvatore, we mentioned some of your work here do you have any commentary on what johan's put together great stuff johan uh thanks for, for working on this part while i'm not doing that <laughs> uh that's uh that the idea of compiling arbitrary computation was always kind of like the the completeness theorem that i was very proud of in the in the proposal um but at this time i'm actually working more on uh basic tooling and basic stuff. Uh, so I look forward definitely to combine uh, Johan's work uh, with the, the stuff I'm doing to uh, to create a framework to, to to basically make it easy to define and use these kind of uh, contracts um, and, and make demos out of. Yeah, I can add to that as well as uh, that's the main challenge right now. It's making this actually developer friendly. And now we have to go through several steps and work with pretty low level details to be able to make this work and that's something i i hope to be able to to improve on so yeah uh, the, the, as, yeah. yeah the challenge I'm, I'm prototyping stuff in python and johan doesn't like python that's the main <laughs> yeah that summarizes it pretty well <laughs> johan thanks thanks for hanging on i know it's a big newsletter today uh and, and thanks for presenting uh, your idea here any call to action for the audience before we move along? Uh, try it out and pitch me ideas for example programs uh, I can implement using this. That's kind of what I'm looking for now. Uh, some really cool use cases that I can use to actually prototype this. Thanks, Johan. Eighth item from the news section this week. Pool exit payment batching with delegation using fraud proofs. Salvatore, this is a post that you put on the Delving Bitcoin forum. Um, I think maybe to calibrate the discussion, the audience is probably familiar conceptually with join pools or channel factories and concept. And I think probably also familiar with the idea of payment batching with respect to Optech and our harping on exchanges in years past to implement uh, payment batching for their systems but um, you're, you're somewhat uh, elaborating and marrying the two here. Um, maybe you want to take that intro in whatever direction you think makes sense to get the idea across. Yep, thank you. Um, so yeah, this post was about uh, some other aspects of what this uh, challenge response protocols can do. Um, so the original uh, idea in the write-up of the math proposal uh, was exactly to do what Johan has been demoing, which is taking some computation, which is too expensive or too large to do it directly in Bitcoin script and using this challenge response protocol uh, so that you avoid actually doing the computation. Uh, but the key is that all the inputs and all the outputs and what is the computation, it's all known. So there is no hidden uh, stuff, like everything is known and it, the computation could be on chain if you were able to do it. And uh, in this post, I'm exploring something which is slightly different, which is um, actually avoiding putting the witness on chain at all. Um, the idea is that uh, if you have a protocol where multiple parties are involved, um, you could just have a commitment on, on chain to some stuff, and then you can make claims about this commitment. And as long as you're not lying, you don't need to reveal anything about the actual data that is in the um, that is part of your commitment. Um, and in the context of these pools, which are 
uh, all these constructions that uh, where there are many users and each user, user has a balance, uh, basically for all of them, somewhere in your UTXO, you have some Merkle tree where you have for each user a public key and, uh, and the balance. Uh, of course, it could be on the top tree or it could be um, somewhere else. In, in if you do it with, uh, with Matt, probably it could be in the hidden data inside the UTXO. Uh, and, and so when you want to uh, unilaterally withdraw from this, um, from this, thing, from this uh, protocols, you need to reveal the Merkle proof somehow. Um, and so that's, uh, that kind of uh, brings, uh, puts a limit to um, how small your balance could be if you are able to do an unilateral withdrawal, uh, because uh, that's already a problem in Lightning, uh, where just a single transaction of a few hundred bytes could be too expensive if your balance is just uh, a few hundred sats, for example. Uh, and this problem gets bigger if you do UTXO sharing. So if there are, uh, if it becomes more expensive to actually put the proof on chain. And so the idea here uh, is that, uh, well, instead of putting uh, a Merkle proof, uh, you could just claim, hey, my balance is 10,000 sats uh, and I'm taking it out, right? Uh, and so the idea is that uh, since the balance of all users uh, in this system will be known to all the other users, uh, if you're lying, people can prove that you're lying. Um, and so as long as there is a way for them uh, of challenging you, uh, you avoid putting the Merkle proof at all on chain. Um, and so that's the first step of the idea. Uh, but it becomes uh, more interesting when you uh, generalize that to, to multiple users at the same time. Uh, because uh, if you have many, many users with a small balance, maybe their aggregate balance is, is large enough to, uh, to be worth actually withdrawing, right? Um, and so the idea is that you could have uh, some intermediary that takes the job of withdrawing for a bunch of users. Um, so uh, basically, all these users will delegate to this intermediary. Uh, and then this intermediary just claims, I have the permission to withdraw this amount of SATs from all these users. Um, uh, and so there are multiple, to make this protocol work, you need to, uh, to have different ways of challenging because of course the intermediary could lie and not actually have the delegation. Uh, and so you need to be able to challenge them uh, if they actually don't have the permission. Uh, and also the intermediary could uh, lie on, on the total balance of the users. And so you need the other users who are not, uh, who are not uh, basically you need the users who are in the pool. If the uh, intermediary is lying, you, um, uh, you need to be able to challenge them on, on, on the correct information and, and halt the withdrawal basically. And the, the kind of uh, challenge response protocols are very similar to the ones that would be used in the in the math proposal like the uh, similar to the ones that Johan has been building um, and the cool thing is that um, compared to uh, other ways of doing unilateral withdrawal the amount of bytes per user uh, is a lot smaller uh, ideally it could be just a few bytes per user and uh, and actually uh, I, I sketched an approach where if you uh, if most of the users are uh, withdrawing, uh, you could actually bring that to just a few bits per user, perhaps. And uh, uh, and so this kind of approach could be interesting for any kind of construction that uh, has this um, property that all the users' uh, balances are known to, to all the all the participants in the in the system. Um, and so that could be useful for something like Arc. Could be useful for coin pools. Could be useful for. Uh, uh, for an optimistic roll-up in the future, if, for example, the operator is non-cooperative or stops responding. Um, and, and so 
it could be plugged as a plugin to all these kind of existing constructions because uh, you can create this UTXO where the only allowed action is to take your money out. So uh, you, you would use this UTXO as a um, like disaster recovery where, for example, if the operator stops responding, uh, you embed the mechanism in this layer two protocol so that uh, the UTXO can be spent to this unwinding uh, contract. Um, and so, uh, and on this contract, then you can do this kind of uh, proofs. There's been a lot of discussion in the current environment lately about things like join pools and, and sharing UTXOs. Um, am I right in understanding from the write-up that what would be required here is a, a few different opcodes, including opcat, opcha contract verify, and some introspection opcode as well, and then potentially it would be easier with check sig from stack? Or is, is that the right, or is, is there a, a more MVP version of this that could get out with less of the opcodes? Uh, well, I think, so you basically need to be able to do challenge response protocols, which is what I call MAT. Uh, so you could get challenge response protocols in different ways. So the check contract verify, check contract verify plus opcat is the most direct way, but you could actually get the same functionality of MAT with other proposals, other different opcodes. Um, unclear uh, how efficient, of course, but it should be possible. Um, but uh, here, the only additional thing compared to the core MAT proposal is that you need to be able to um, to check uh, at least with equality uh, the the amount of outputs. Uh, so you you could just add one opcode to uh, put to this in in the stack, for example, the amount of an output, uh, which anyway will be needed for something like a coin pool. Um, and, and yeah, also I mentioned some nice to haves because so for the current semantics that I implement in object contract verify, you could do it without in principle. Uh, so I mentioned check C from stack and I mentioned 64 bit arithmetic. Um, 64 bit arithmetic, if you have opcat, you can actually simulate it. It's awkward. So we would like not to do it, but it's possible. And uh, checks from stack, uh, I mentioned that there is a trick to uh, simulate the functionality of checks from stack uh, with, with a workaround where you use some pre-signed transactions, basically. So it's nice if you, if you have checks from stack, uh, it becomes nicer because you can just verify signature on signed data and that, that, that's needed for basically for signing the delegations. We had a requested speaker from the audience and Adrian, I've given you speaker access. Did you have a question or comment for Salvatore? No, sorry. Merch or Johan, any questions or comments for Salvatore on uh, the proposal he posted to Delving Bitcoin? Merch says he's good. Johan, any comments? All right. Salvatore, thanks for joining us. Any calls to action for the audience on um, any of the items we discussed today pertaining to your proposals? Uh, not really, just think about cool stuff we can do with Covenants. There is, we, are, we are just at the beginning. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome to stay on, but if you have other things, you're free to drop. We have one more news item for this week. New coin selection strategies, and this was authored by co-host of our show, Merch, posting to the Delving Bitcoin forum. Merch, 
I'll let you introduce and elaborate on your discussion on delving Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, so some of you might have noticed that we've had slightly higher fee rates recently. And in July, I thought that it might be time that Bitcoin Core finally, the wallet gets in a coin selection algorithm that actually minimizes the weight at high fee rates because none of the existing three coin selection algorithms uh, guarantee to minimize the weight. Uh, so branch and bound obviously will find the least wasteful solution, but there is not always a changeless solution. And then Knapsack will find the solution that uh, uses the, the least overshoot over the target. And SRD is just a single random draw, so it'll just randomly bumble around in your UTXL pool until you have enough funds. So I wrote a coin grinder, which is basically a re-implementation of the same idea as BNB, but uh, it minimizes the input weight for a in input set that creates a change output. And yeah, that doesn't have so much review yet, but I just got a good review from one of my colleagues and I'm, I'm restructuring my PR. But um, generally the idea is I can just actually search the entire combination, combination space of my UTXOs for the smallest input weight and or sorry for the input set with the smallest weight and use that especially at fee rates like 300 sats per v-byte so uh, hopefully next week when this pr is open again i would love for people to take a look at both my simulation results which i posted about in delving bitcoin or my pr because uh, if that ships in the next release maybe if the uh, BRC20 nonsense hasn't tapered off completely by then, we would have at least a tool in the Bitcoin Core wallet to build the minimal weight input sets transactions. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of data in that Delving Bitcoin post. Um, two different simulations with tons of graphs and tables for folks to look at. It sounds like there'll be a new PR open soon. So if you're curious about coin selection, take a look at both of those. Anything else you'd call for folks to do, Merch? Well, I've got zero responses on my delving Bitcoin post. So if coin selection is your sort of jam and you're looking for an interesting read, maybe have a look and let me know what I'm missing to convince people to review my PR. Merch, thanks for walking us through that. Normally I offer for guests to be able to jump off, but you have to stay on now and go through the releases and release candidates and notable code and documentation changes with me. Uh, releases and release candidates. Core Lightning 23.11.2. We cover the PR that's part of this release below, so we'll, we'll punt on that for the moment. Um, I think it's just that PR that's part of this change in Core Lightning. The next release is to LibSecP, and this change makes some performance improvements. Quote, the point multiplication algorithm used for ECDSH operations was replaced with a slightly faster one. And also another quote, optional handwritten x86 assembly for field operations was removed because modern C compilers are able to output more efficient assembly. So it sounds like folks were hard coding some assembly for performance reasons uh, that the compiler wasn't able to compete with. And now the compiler 
is such a state that that handwritten assembly is no longer needed for the efficient operation and in fact is slower than what the compiler is doing. So libsecp has these performance improvements. Moving on to notable code and documentation changes. Bitcoin Core 28.349, beginning requiring the use of C++20 compatible compilers, which allows future PRs to use those C++20 features. And the PR description states, quote, C++20 allows to write safer code because it allows to enforce more stuff at compile time. Merchie may have many more insights to that than I do. Um, it sounds like this is a good improvement that will help. I, I don't know the details of things that will be caught at compile time that currently aren't. I don't know if you have a comment on that or insight there. Uh, I'm certainly not among the best C++ experts in among the Bitcoin Core contributors, but one thing that I've heard is that C++ 20 enables modules, and modules may... Uh, enable us to have a slightly faster compile time for Bitcoin Core uh, in the long run when we get that. But that would be lovely because every time you build C plus, uh, sorry, build Bitcoin Core to run the tests again with your new changes, if that were a little faster, that would be super cool. Core Lightning 6957. So in Lightning, you have this min final CLTV expiry value which specifies the max number of blocks that a receiver has in order to claim a payment. Bolt 2 of the Lightning spec suggests this value to be a default of 18, but LND is using a value of 9, about a half of that. Uh, 9 is lower than what Core Lightning will accept by default, so there were some issues there, and Core Lightning now includes a field specifically requesting that CLTV expiry to be 18, which mitigates the issue and is part of that Core Lightning 23.11.2 release that we mentioned earlier. Another Core Lightning PR, 6869, updating the RPC list channels to no longer include unannounced or private channels. And the PR noted Quote, it turns out that we relied on private gossip in many places, particularly in our tests. So if you're looking to list unannounced or private channels, there are there's a different RPC called list peer channels, which will provide that information for users or developers who need that. Eclair 2796 updates it, its dependency on a particular logging library called Logback Classic which had a CVE bug. Uh, the PR noted that while Eclair isn't affected, since we don't use logback receivers, but if there are applications or plugins that depend on Eclair and its use of logback receivers, it's better to use the logback version containing the fix. So proactive, defensive move by the Eclair team to prevent a potential issue. Eclair 2787, upgrading its support of header retrieval from the BitcoinHeaders.net service to the latest API. BitcoinHeaders.net is a service for providing another source of Bitcoin blockchain data. Uh, it uses DNS to provide that information. It supports full Bitcoin headers or neutrino filter headers. 
And that service updated to a new version two, and Eclair is now using that newer version for its additional source of header data. Rich, I'm curious, had you ever heard of BitcoinHeaders.net before? I, I, have I have not. This is, this is a first for me, to be honest. Okay. Uh, I guess it's an improvement over people being able to download the full blockchain from websites. LDK 2781 and LDK 2688. We've covered LDK and other implementations work towards uh, offers, including blinded hops and blinded payments. And I think last LDK that we covered uh, related PR was just a single hop blinded payment, whereas these two PRs update that support for sending and receiving now multi-hop blinded payments, as well as complying with the requirement uh, from the offers protocol that um, there's always at least one blinded hop. We did a recap of 2023 at the end of last year, and we talked a lot about onion messages, blinded paths, and offers. So if you're curious about that stack of technology, jump back to that. We had some fun at the end of the year, and uh, also, also hopefully some of that is educational for folks on this particular topic. LDK 2723, adding support for sending onion messages using direct connections. And as part of the write-up this week, we included an example where a sender can't find a path to the receiver, but knows the receiver's network address, for example, like IP address. So the sender can actually open up a direct peer connection to that receiver and send onion messages, which would allow onion messages to work well, even uh, if it's not highly supported on the network, which is the case today. And final PR this week. If anybody has a burning question or comment, last chance to request speaker access or comment in the tweet thread. This PR is to the BIPs repository 1504, and it updates BIP2 to allow any BIP to be written in Markdown. Previously, everything had to be written in the media wiki markup, so somewhat of a meta slash plumbing change, but now you can write your BIPs in Markdown instead of just MediaWiki markup. I'm sure that's going to vastly increase the mark, uh, the BIPs being suggested. Not Yes, um, maybe there's a, a slew of new Covenant proposals that were just waiting to be written in Markdown only. So, Well, well maybe the 13th will finally manage to combine all the things people <laughs> want out of introspection and also be palatable to everyone and uh, super simple. Checking our comments. Oh, Abubakar, sorry, I missed your question to Antoine. Sorry about that. Uh, I don't think there's anything else that we should address from the comments for this podcast. Another over one and a half hours of great Bitcoin technical content. Thanks to all of our special guests for taking time to join us and discuss their proposals, ideas, projects, proof of concepts. Thanks always to my co-host, Merch, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks, and Happy New Year. Cheers. You too.